tonight on the KRBD Evening Report. The Forest Service plans to hold public meetings on a logging proposal in the Carroll Inlet area. Plus, the Governor's Ferry Work Group recommends shrinking the fleet, forward funding the Marine Highway, and creating an executive board. All that and more coming up. First, let's take a look at the weather. Rain tonight with lows in the mid-40s. We'll have southeast winds to 10 miles an hour. Numerous rain showers tomorrow with highs around 50 and light winds. Widespread rain showers Saturday night, lows around 40 and light winds. Numerous rain showers again on Sunday, highs around 50 and southeast winds to 10 miles an hour. And finishing up a wet weekend on Sunday night with numerous rain showers and lows around 40. You're listening to the KRBD Evening Report. I'm your host, Eric Stone. The U.S. Forest Service has scheduled three public meetings to discuss timber, wildlife, and recreation projects northeast of Ketchikan. Officials from the federal agency will discuss what's called the South Revilla Integrated Resources Project, which includes logging more than 5,200 acres of old-growth forest. The Forest Service plans to open some 6,200 acres near the shores of Carroll Inlet to logging, most of which is old-growth forest. It would also build nearly 50 miles of new logging roads. The vast majority of the harvest would be clear cuts. The agency says that would support about 350 timber jobs, but industry representatives have expressed skepticism that the timber sale would find any buyers. The Forest Service's environmental study says the project would fracture habitat, especially for deer, an important subsistence food source. The project would also expand recreation in the Shelter Cove area, boat launches, parking lots, campsites, informational kiosks, things like that. But none of those would be connected to Ketchikan's road system, at least not at first, until the state finishes the Shelter Cove road next year. The project would also include habitat restoration and other environmental work. The Ketchikan Gateway Borough supports the project, saying it would open up more recreation opportunities and boost the timber sector. Ketchikan Indian Community is what's called a cooperating agency in the project, providing input as a federally recognized tribal government. The tribe has yet to take a formal position on the overall project. The Forest Service is scheduled to hold two public teleconferences on the project, along with a virtual hearing for subsistence users on Tuesday, October 13th, Thursday, October 15th, and Friday, October 16th. Officials will present the plan and take questions. The agency is taking public input in writing through October 19th. We've got the full schedule for hearings plus the number to call at our website. That's krbd.org. The group tasked with reshaping the future of the state-run ferry system is recommending the creation of an executive board, fewer vessels, and at least two years of forward funding for the cash-trapped ferries. As Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick reports, the Alaska Marine Highway Reshaping Work Group wrapped up eight months of work this month and has sent its ideas on to the governor's office. Tom Barrett, a retired Coast Guard Admiral and Pipeline Services Executive, chaired the group's 30-odd video conference meetings. He told the work group at its final one that the group's recommendations should be taken as outside advice. I've got no direction, steering, or limits uh, suggested by anybody in the administration. So it's our report. Um, people can like it, dislike it, um, adopt recommendations or not. Some of the changes we're recommending are hard and will require a fair amount of work to actually make happen. Governor Mike Dunleavy created the nine-person panel to evaluate the $250,000 ferry study prepared by Northern Economics last year. It did that and more, including endorsing the creation of a Marine Highway Executive Board to steer operations and long-term planning. The work group also recommends reducing the size of the fleet, 
spirit pointed to laid-up vessels, including the two fast ferries and the Malaspina, which are moored in Ward Cove at the system's expense. They cost $170,000 a month to keep at the dock, and they're never coming back in the system. And literally, you may have to give them away. The group didn't reach consensus on every issue. Some wanted language endorsing progress on replacing the Tustamina, a federally funded project on hold until 2023. Tony Johansson, a road contractor from Fairbanks, has maintained it's too expensive. He recommended scrapping service to southwestern Alaska, where airplanes can take people and barges can carry freight. But you surely don't build a huge vessel that's going to cost a fortune to run for a system that it's it's on its deathbed, unless it gets more money out of, out of the state system. That raised the hackles of Kodiak Republican Representative Louise Stutes. You know, to just, excuse me for interrupting, but my blood is boiling here, because to just arbitrarily tell a good portion of coastal Alaska, well, sorry folks, you're done. I, it just rubs me the wrong way. It is treating Alaskans poorly. It remains unclear whether the Tustamina replacement project was addressed in the group's final draft. It did recommend fewer sailings across the system, fewer communities served, ways to increase road access to coastal communities, and to find ways to reduce personnel costs. Representing the Marine Highways ferry workers was Ben Goldrich of the Marine Engineers Union. He pushed back on wages being a target for cuts. He suggested more effort to cut waste in procurement, repairs, and maintenance in outsourcing. You know, we have we work in a uh, capitalist system. Everybody's every time a parts ordered, somebody's trying to get a piece of the action, and that is a place where they can reduce costs by involving the crews more. Yeah. And that's the way it used to be. Other recommendations, including asking the legislature to provide forward funding for at least two years, allowing the Marine Highway to plan and create schedules 12 to 18 months in advance. Other recommendations include constructing a new ferry terminal at Juno's Cascade Point. That would shave two hours of travel time on runs up Lynn Canal, allowing day boats to complete the round-trip voyage between Juneau, Haines, and Skagway within a 12-hour window. DOT spokesman Andy Mills confirmed that the document has arrived in the governor's office, but said it won't be publicly released until agency staff has a chance to digest it and prepare its own implementation plans. So within the next two weeks, it's our, our plan to, to have those discussions and to have at least the initial outline of, of what recommendations we can act upon in, in the near and then maybe the long term uh, have that sketched out as well. The work group recommends the agency adopt a long-term plan for the ferry system and to create a three-member transition team to work within the agency to implement changes in the near future. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Resnick. Several Americans have been cited by law enforcement in British Columbia for breaking rules intended to prevent the spread of COVID-19. That comes after the Canadian Border Services Agency implemented tougher restrictions in July for travelers driving to or from Alaska through Canada. Staff Sergeant Janelle Shoyet with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police says law enforcement were contacted when a group of travelers failed to social distance and wear masks while making a stop at Fort St. John in late August. Three individuals who were traveling from America into up to Alaska and were found to have been in a, in a uh, local area restaurant not wearing a um, mask and dining in and having contact with people inside the restaurant and then sustained contact with people after the restaurant. So they were fined $1,000 each. Shoyet says that in another instance, a family of five driving from Alaska to Washington was cited for failing to make that trip in the amount of time they were allotted. Border agents notified law enforcement and the group was escorted to the border and fined. 
But Shoyet says incidents like that have been rare. You know, we encourage everybody to listen to the regulations and abide by those regulations. I mean, certainly we're not out to give fines to everybody, but, you know, if you are found to be not compliant with that, we will certainly issue the fines, and that is to protect all Canadians and, and, and our communities. The Canadian border has been closed to non-essential travel since March. Alaskans are allowed to travel through the country for essential reasons and under certain conditions. Canadian border officials require travelers to wear masks while in transit and remain in their vehicle as much as possible. New regulations implemented in July require motorists to enter Canada through 105 border crossings when making their way to Alaska. Travelers who cross the border are given a specific date by which they must depart Canada and are required to take the most direct route from their point of entry to their point of exit. With about a week left to go in the season, hunters continue to report more success with moose in central southeast Alaska. 2020 may not keep pace with last year's record-setting harvest, but it's still another strong season. As of Wednesday morning, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game reports 74 legal bull moose taken. Another two moose did not meet state requirements for antler size and configuration. Kupernoff Island is by far the biggest producer in central southeast this season. Hunters have killed 18 legal bulls around Cake and another 15 on the rest of that island. Nearby Kyuyu Island has yielded 16 bulls so far. Hunters have also taken nine on the Stikine River near Wrangell and another two on Wrangell Island. Thomas Bay on the mainland near Petersburg has produced four moose, and there's been one killed in Farragut Bay and two more from other parts of the mainland. The month-long season is open through October 15th. This year, the FCC opened a window of opportunity for Native Americans to secure rights to their own wireless broadband networks. As Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick reports, talks are underway of creating an intertribal network to improve internet connectivity in Southeast Alaska villages. Southeast Alaska tribes have few communities connected by road. And while the internet has helped bridge gaps from physical distances, it's often far from fast or reliable. That was on display this month when Central Council of Tlingit and Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska held its 85th Tribal Assembly entirely online. Tribal Vice President Will Micklin says the COVID-19 pandemic made that necessary, but the digital divide was apparent. It was um, a difficult connection for most of the villages outside of Sitka, Ketchikan, and Juneau. Klingit and Haida is among hundreds of tribal entities nationwide to apply for a special wireless spectrum license to fill gaps in communities underserved by commercial carriers. We don't have a profit motive. Our motive is a delivery of service. I, I really view broadband as a, an inherent right for our tribal citizens, and uh, that is made ever uh, clearer to me by the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic where deficiencies in infrastructures became ever more apparent. This year, the FCC made that possible by offering a spectrum for wireless broadband, such as 5G data service, to native communities. Any unclaimed bandwidth will be auctioned off later to private carriers. Other tribes in Southeast are taking the same initiative. Huna Indian Association has a pending application with the FCC. Tribal Administrator Bob Starbard says it covers the tribal's traditional territory and even some neighbors. Our plan is to use it to create a broadband network for all of the community residents of Huna and any of the other population center that's happened to fall within our 
territory. That overlaps with Tlingit and Haida's application, but both tribes say they'd cooperate, not compete. The regional tribe has pledged not to overlap its services with local tribes. If a tie-in with a commercial carrier doesn't make sense for Huna, Starbard says there's talk of joining forces, as they'll all be on the same 2.5 gigahertz spectrum. There's a joint effort uh, within tribes that's being discussed with Clinton Haida Central Council and uh, other tribes of uh, some form of intertribal network. But first, the FCC will need to issue the licenses. And when it does, hundreds of tribes across the U.S. are expected to have a unique opportunity to fill gaps in connectivity in underserved areas, which describes most of rural Alaska. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Bresnik. Before we go, a correction to a story we aired yesterday about Thorn Bay's municipal elections. We declared winners in the races for city council seats C and E, but with some 91 absentee and questioned ballots left to be counted, both of those races are in fact too close to call. Those ballots are scheduled to be counted this evening. In addition, we misidentified candidate Gregory Kirkhoff as an incumbent. In fact, both Kirkhoff and rival Tom Cunningham are vying for an open seat with no incumbent running. Thanks to the listener who called that in. We're committed to bringing you accurate information. If you hear something incorrect in a KRBD story, please contact us as soon as possible at 225-9655 or email newsnews at krbd.org. That's it for tonight's KRBD Evening Report. Have a good weekend. I've been your host, Eric Stone.